In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's beautiful to see you. One of the, um, one of the pleasures of studying the Bible is um, discovering all of the interesting conversations going on among professors of archaeology, you know, and professors of obscure and dead Semitic languages, following their lines of thought down very strange rabbit holes into worlds you never imagined, you know. This week I fell down one of those rabbit holes. I almost didn't get out of it. Um, Eventually, it brought me into this entire alternative universe commanded by the ancient goddess Inanna, otherwise known as Ishtar, Ishtar, the queen of heaven, who was worshipped as the primary deity of Sumeria and Assyria for several thousand years. Inanna was a complex, multifaceted goddess, a goddess of love, and war. She commanded thunder and lightning. She brought pitiless destruction upon her enemies. And she was also a goddess of benevolence and fertility, of motherhood and intimacy. The image of Inanna that I like best was discovered among some clay tablets that date back to 2500 BC. She stands strong and athletic. She looks like a Marvel comic book hero. And she's wearing this armor and she's got these swords and arrows strapped to her back and she's got wings spread out behind her and she has this really intimidating kind of self-contained smile on her face. And she's standing on top of a lion. And I just kind of fell in love with her when I saw that image. I was like, wow! And get this, she was the first deity ever described in written language. Think about that. The very first deity, male or female, ever described in writing. The first protagonist, the first hero, the first subject of a sacred story, the first product of a literate mind. Unfortunately, the stories that were told about her are not terribly flattering by modern ears, anyway. In one story, Inanna comes across a mountain that is so beautiful, so majestic, that it just, it puts her own beauty to shame and she hates it. So she, she destroys the mountain. In another story, she descends to the underworld, which is ruled by her sister, she goes there with the idea of kind of taking over the underworld. Instead, her sister tricks her into relinquishing her powers and then kills her. And in the story, this is hilarious and slightly inappropriate to talk about, but in the story, the minute she dies, all sex on earth comes to a stop. No more. Uh, eventually, a rescue mission ensues. <laughs> of course, you know, got to save her. And uh, she's brought back to life. But in order to be released from the underworld, she has to find someone to replace her. Uh, and so she nominates her husband. 
and he is forced to go to hell in her place. Nice, right? People have been arguing about the meaning of these myths about Inanna for years, of course. The most convincing one I came up, I, I found, was simply, life is not fair. When bad things happen to you, you know, when your dad gets run over by an ox cart and now you're begging on the streets or when your brother gets arrested because he laughed at a joke about the king, well, what do you expect? Inanna is in charge. The universe is run by a vain and narcissistic, power-crazy goddess who will destroy worlds and sacrifice lovers to get what she wants. So what makes you think you're so special? <laughs> so these are the myths and the sacred stories that serve to bolster whoever is in power during the time in Sumeria and Assyria. Local warlords and kings would market themselves as being loved by Inanna, and that would bolster their power. Anyway, we know all this about Inanna and her worshipers because of these enormous hills that populate the deserts of present-day Iraq and Syria. They look like strange, small, symmetrical mountains, but they're not geological formations. They're rather the remains of ancient cities that have been built on top of other ancient cities, that have been built on top of other ancient cities, and so on, until they become these massive mountain-type structures in the middle of the desert. And some of these, when they're called tells, tells, some of these tells go back 10,000 years. 10,000 years. Needless to say, they are an archaeologist's dream. Archaeologists, they, they start at the top, and then they just start digging down, and every few feet they discover another empire, another god, another culture, another temple. In the time of Jesus, these tells stood in the desert as they do today. Their ancient walls and fortifications were obvious to anyone who cared to poke around them. And if you climbed to the top, you would find the ruins of a once vital city now reduced to rubble. Inevitably, these cities on a hill were all destined for ruin because it turns out that they, while they were standing tall in the middle of the desert, they were also quite obvious to every invading army that if that's, you know, if you want to take over that land, you're going to have to go burn down that city on top of that mountain. So, anyway, the thing that led me down that particular rabbit hole, and thank you, by the way, for going there with me, it makes me feel better, um, is the saying in Matthew's Gospel, a city built on a hill cannot be hid, which is an edited version of a much more interesting saying that is found in the Gospel of Thomas, and is thought to be more original to Jesus, a city built on a high hill and fortified cannot fall, but nor can it be hidden. It's a really ironic saying. A city built on a high hill and fortified cannot fall, but also 
it cannot be hidden. In other words, you might be strong, you might be a mighty fortress, but your very visibility makes you vulnerable. Every invading army will know where you live. At the height of his powers, I think about Muhammad Ali, who um, always had to deal with some dope at a bar who just needed to take a swing at him so that he could brag to his friends that he hit Muhammad Ali. And so Muhammad Ali's strength, his very towering physique, his sheer greatness actually made him more vulnerable to dopes and bars. So now these once great cities lie in ruins and Inanna, the queen of heaven who reigned over all of it, is forgotten, an obscure deity found only in the back pages of Wikipedia. Makes you think. Uh, transition. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm missing the transition. This was my, like, this missing segue is right there. That's, imagine a segue that artfully got us to the next section. Okay. Recently, <laughs> I'm not proud of this sermon. I'm just telling you right now. I just, I'm doing my best here. I just got out of the rabbit hole. I don't know. Anyway. Recently, Pope Francis has been speaking out about the Vatican Bank and his ties to Italian organized crime. Apparently, the bank has been laundering money for huge crime syndicates for, since the beginning of time, and the Pope is trying to put an end to this. An Italian prosecutor just warned the Pope that he was putting his life at considerable risk, and yet the Pope seems unconcerned. He still rides around in his Ford Focus, still jumps out and connects with the crowds who come out to see him, and he still speaks the truth, come what may. You know, it makes me wonder what gave him that kind of courage. And it makes me think of Dr. King, who was receiving death threats on a daily basis, knowing in his bones that the end was coming. And he, that day that he stood on the pulpit, at the pulpit, the day before his assassination, and he spoke at length about the death threats that were being made against him. And he said, I've been to the mountaintop, you know that's, that speech, I've been to the promised land, I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. What gave Dr. King that courage to keep going despite death threats? I think maybe it's this simple. He chose to worship Christ crucified instead of Inanna. Dr. King did not choose to worship a God of power and strength. He did not worship a God who would do anything, say anything to stay in power or to get reelected or whatever. Instead, he worshiped a God who died on a cross in the cause of love. When St. Paul came to Corinth to spread the gospel, he was intimidated by the complexity and the diversity of that community. People were split into factions of culture, class, and religion, and Paul struggled at first to try to figure out how is he going to try to bring these people together, how to unite them. 
And in Walter Peterson's beautiful translation, Paul says, I was scared to death, if you want the truth of it. But the message came through anyway. God's spirit and God's power did it, which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power. Your life of faith is a response to God's power. Not to some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. That's Paul talking. And then he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. That's where the power of God comes alive. Right there as Paul follows Jesus to the cross. In that moment, in the face of the most brutal and most powerful empire the world had ever seen, Paul spoke plainly against the false egos of that empire and against the false gods of, did I say false egos? Did I say that? False gods of ego, vanity, and power. The false gods that were corrupting and destroying the people of God. His courage was not his own, but it was a gift of the resurrecting power of God. United with Jesus in this death-defying power, he became a light that inspired others, sparking a movement that enlightened the nations. Which makes me wonder these days as I watch the election cycle unfold, you know? Here's just another one of these ancient, familiar stories of people competing for power and glory, and I find myself wondering, which God are they worshiping? You know, Inanna or Christ crucified? So all of which is to say, I ask your prayers this morning for our nation and our world that our leaders and would-be leaders might indeed become a light to the nations showing the world what courage actually looks like. May they be protected, may they be kept safe, and most importantly, may they always choose love over power, truth over fear, which is nothing but the foolish wisdom of the cross. Amen.